Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel chapter 35. We're actually going to do two chapters, 35 and 36. And uh, chapter 35, there's a contrast between chapter 35 and chapter 36. Um, Chapter 35 uh, deals with Mount Seir uh, in the land of Edom, Edom, excuse me. And it's compared, and chapter 36 deals with the mountains of Israel. So we'll start with it. Chapter 35, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord." Seir was actually the name of one of Esau's descendants. Um, And this mountain, obviously, was named after him. Uh, Esau was the father of the Edomites. And uh, Edom actually means red, which uh, probably goes back to uh, the uh, mess of pottage or whatever that pottage that uh, Esau traded his birthright for. Um, Could be anyways. But anyways, Edom means red. And uh, so this chapter here is a prophecy against the nation of Edom who descended from Esau. Now, there's other scriptures devoted to the prophecy against Edom. We looked at them when we were in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 49 was one of them. Back in Ezekiel chapter 25, we talked about that there. And then when we get to the book of Obadiah, that is a complete prophecy against Edom. Uh, What was Edom's sins? Well, we're told here in verse 5. Because you have an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. So the very first reason is because of their ancient hatred. And if you'll think back to the time of Esau, Esau hated his brother Jacob. It's interesting. Uh, um, I was reading through Hebrews and I came across these two comparisons in two different chapters. In Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith chapter, um, it's talking about Moses in verse 25. And he says that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You know, Moses raised up in Pharaoh's house, had all the, all the, uh, the things that money could buy, all the power, all the influence, all the comforts of being Pharaoh's uh, adopted son. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it compares to Esau. And it says, talking about Esau, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." Just because he was hungry, just to fill a base instinct, you know, just that hunger, he was willing to throw away his birthright just to satisfy his flesh in one instant. And uh, it says that he sought for repentance diligently with tears. Well, that repentance with tears was for the consequences. 
He was upset with the consequences. You recall when, when he found out that his brother had deceived him, that Jacob had deceived him, he cried out and said, Father, isn't there a blessing for me? And, and he was just crying, bless me, bless me, bless me. And, and, and Isaac said, I, I've done what I've done. Your, son has ta- or your brother has taken the birthright. Now, if he was truly repentant, I think what follows after this would be different. But I think because he wasn't repentant, it says Jacob then, or excuse me, Esau then determined to kill his brother. That doesn't sound like a repentant person to me. That sounds like someone who's filled with hatred and anger. And so Esau determined to kill Jacob. Now, you know the story of Jacob and Esau. They, you know, Jacob went into the land of Haran and stayed there for a long time. And, you know, the Lord blessed him and the Lord blessed Esau too. And, and at one point, they were reunited as older men with all their families and all their, you know, everything that they had accumulated and acquired over the years. And apparently, Esau, at that time, his anger had subsided. And, you know, Jacob didn't know. Jacob thought he was going to kill him, but Esau saw him. They embraced. And uh, we don't know of any kind of difficulties between Esau and Jacob in the Bible as far as that goes. So Jacob and Esau eventually did reconcile. But it's interesting, his children... Esau's children never reconciled with Jacob's children and their descendants after them. You know, parents have a tremendous influence upon their children, either for good or for bad. What do you say freely in front of your children at home? Is it stuff that you would never say in public? Do you criticize people? You know, you know, you, you see them in church, and then you come home and you go, man, I can't believe that person, this and this and this. And your children are there listening to it because they pick up on your attitudes. They pick up on what you say, how you behave at home as compared to how you behave in public. It influences your children, either for good or for bad. And Esau, apparently, you know, the Scriptures doesn't tell us. I'm kind of filling in the blanks, but... You know, I can just see Esau, you know, grumbling and complaining and, man, I'm going to kill that guy. And, you know, for many, probably for many years, you know, I, man, I wait till I get my hands on that guy. And, uh, and then, you know, they, they'd be in, in Edom and like, you know, it's, it's a dry desert type of place. And here Israel is blessed. That land is blessed, the land of Canaan. And, and I could see, you know, Esau saying, man, if, if only your brother, my brother hadn't stolen that birthright, man, that land would have been yours. And, you know, just feeding that into those children, because apparently for generations after, the Edomites hated the children of Israel. And so it perpetuated down the years. So they had this ancient hatred. The second reason it says here is that they shed the blood of the children of Israel at the time when their iniquity came to an end. That's an interesting phrase, when their iniquity came to an end. I think what that's referring to is at the time that God's patience and his long-suffering finally turned to action in punishing the nation of Judah for their sins. You know, he's been putting up with them and putting up with them, sending prophets after prophets, and finally it's like, you know, they, they need to go into captivity because they have not repented. And so at that time when their iniquity, it's, it's like the fulfillment of their punishment is what, what I infer from this passage of scripture. Now it also seems to infer that the Edomites might have assisted the Babylonians in slaughtering the Jews um, when the Babylonians were coming into the land. Um, probably they were cutting off people that were trying to escape into their land. You know, a Jewish person coming into their land, they'd kill them, you know, so that they couldn't escape from the sword. And that's what I think this is referring to. Verse 6, 
Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you, since you have not hated blood. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. Thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it the one who leaves and the one who returns, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those who are slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you perpetually desolate, and your city shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, because you have said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. These two nations, what's referring to or what's being referred to there, of course, is the nation, the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel. They went into captivity many years earlier by the Assyrians. They went in, the Assyrians that captured them and hauled them off into exile. And then the other nation would be the nation of Judah, um, the southern tribe that was, just went into Babylonian captivity. Verse 11. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you. So we're told what Edom did. They had this ancient hatred. They, they, they cut off. They used the sword against the children of Israel. So they were, they were violent. They killed them. Um, but now we find out what the motivation is behind their actions. And the motivation behind their sins was anger and envy. The Bible has a lot to say about anger and envy. What is envy? Well, I mean, we probably all know what anger is, right? We get angry about things. What is envy? Envy is feeling someone has something that you don't have, but you feel you deserve it. They have what you think you deserve, and you get envious of them. And, you be, and jealousy is kind of tied right in with that. And because you don't have what you feel you deserve, you're angry that they have it. Because, man, I deserved it. Why do they, why do they have it that way? Why do they have such a nice family? Why, do, why is their marriage so good? Why, is, do they get, you know, why do they have a good job and good paying money? Why do they have all the breaks in life? And I don't. And we start becoming angry because we feel like we deserve what they have. That's envy. Now, a lot of times that anger gets turned towards God, right? It's like, God, why did you do this to me? Why, what did I do wrong to deserve this in life? Whatever it is. And anger also gets directed towards the person who has what you don't have. You know, it's so important for you and I to deal with jealousy and envy in our hearts because it rises up easily. It does. And it's so easy. We have to check it. We have to deal with that in our hearts because if left unchecked, it results in anger and eventually hatred for that person. If left unchecked, our hearts are wicked, guys. If left unchecked, pretty soon we start wishing evil upon them and we rejoice if you know what they had all of a sudden is taken away from them or if something negative happens like, ha-ha, finally, they're getting their just desserts. It's, it's, we, have to keep, we have to keep that in check in our hearts. Well, Edom was envious of the land that God had blessed Israel with. And so they wanted to take possession of the land when the children of Israel went into captivity. It's like, man, we finally get that land that we deserved. Verse 13, Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me, 
and multiplied your words against me, I have heard them. Thus says the Lord God, the whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate as you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate. So I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. You know, Edom's hatred for Israel really was hatred against God, or that's what it ended up being, hatred against God. Now, the Edomites were also attacked by the Babylonians a few years after Jerusalem was destroyed. But as a nation, they actually survived for about four centuries, the Edomites. Um, King Herod, remember King Herod around the time of Jesus? He was an Idumean. An Idumean means an Edomite, basically. It's the same same word. And uh, so they were around even at the time of Jesus' life. But the Edomites were almost completely wiped out by Titus Vespasian in 70 A.D. When he destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites were also almost totally wiped out. And eventually they gradually disappeared from history where there's no Edomites today. God's word was fulfilled. His prophecy was fulfilled. It took some time, but it was fulfilled in Edom. So chapter 35 dealt with God's curse against Mount Seir. Chapter 36 now is a contrast and it's God's blessings on the mountains of Israel. Verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country." Now, chapter 35 is specifically, literally a chapter, you know, it's a prophecy against the nation of Edom at that time. But here we find out that Edom is also representative of all the nations around Israel at that time that were glee. They were, they were happy that, that Israel went into captivity and that Jerusalem was destroyed. And then they, they saw that land and they were swooping down to take possession of the land finally because the Jews are out of there. Um, but Edom is representative of all nations, I think, even down to today. There's so many nations today that hate the nation state of Israel, that want that land, that feel that they deserve that land. They want to take it for their possession. You know, God's covenant promise to Abraham was not just to him and his descendants, but God also promised to give Abraham that land, the physical land of, of Israel. And, and this is, that's a covenant promise of God's. And so, you know, today, and this is my opinion, Israel should never concede any of its territory because it's all theirs according to scriptures. You know, 
so many times there's been this this faulty this flawed thinking with politicians and you know and I think even the the leaders of Israel have kind of fell for it too it's the land for peace you know if you just give us the land there'll be peace and so Israel is always encouraged even by our administration encouraged you know give up some land you know pull out of this area give up the heights the golden heights do all this and then you'll have peace the fact is though Israel will never give up enough land in order to have peace with the Arabs around them. They'll never give up enough land. Why? Because they hate the people themselves. All Israel's enemies will never be at peace until Israel surrenders all its land to its enemies. And Israel will never have peace. It's funny, you know, I, I just chuckle. It's like, why do the, why do, every time you get a new president in the office, all of a sudden their goal is to, to you know, we need to, you know, get peace in the Middle East. It's like they want to have that on their records. You know, at least I brought peace to the Middle East. And it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. They will never, Israel is never going to have peace, true peace, until the Prince of Peace returns and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. People are just fooling themselves. You know, in a lot of ways, you and I, as Christians... We're kind of like Israel in that respect. Think how much territory we've given to the enemy. Land for peace. Titus, Paul says this to Titus in Titus chapter 3, 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil promises us peace if we'll just concede territory to them. But the fact is, they will never be satisfied until they have all of you, until they have your entire heart. There'll never be that peace. And so, you know, there was a time when we have surrendered. We have given territory to the enemy in our hearts. We've given room for the enemy. We've given them footholds. But Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drink parties, and abominable idolatries. For you and I as Christians, it's time for you and I to take back that territory that we've surrendered to the enemy in our hearts. It's time for us to take it back. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Verse 6, continuing on here. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations. Sin brings shame. And because of Israel's sin, they were humiliated and put to shame when they went into captivity. I mean, here's God's chosen people, and now they, it's like God's forsaken them. And that's, that's what the, the people said around them. When, when, the, when the Jews went into Babylon, they were mocked by the Babylonians. Hey, sing us one of the songs of Israel. You know? And they were making fun of them. 
But now we get a word of hope, a blessing pronounced on the mountains of Israel. Verse 7, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. And so now God's promise of returning the children of Israel back to the land of Israel. This chapter has everything to do with the land of Israel. Verse 9, For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited, inhabited excuse me, and the ruins rebuilt. Notice that the promise is to all the house of Israel, and it's emphasized all of it. I think God is emphasizing here that it's not just a promise to the people of Judah, because the people that Israel had already gone, you know, the northern kingdom had already gone into captivity. And this prophecy is to the captives in, of Judah in Babylon. But I think God is promise, or emphasizing here that the promise is not just to the people of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, but this is a promise to all the tribes of Israel. Now, I don't know if you've read many things about this and, or maybe heard stories or people have said stuff, but I don't really get too, I don't take too much stock into the lost tribes of Israel. You've maybe heard people refer to that. This, you know, England's the lost tribes of Israel and all this different stuff. You know, although it's true that there's no historical record of the return of the tribes of Israel from captivity, it's true. There's no historical record of when it happened, like we do have from Judah. We do know that the southern kingdom went back, you know, 70 years. They, were, they came back into the land, so we know that they did. We don't know when or if the, the Israelites, the, the northern kingdom, I should say, went back to Israel. They may be lost to us, but evidently they're not lost to God. <laughs> and he's promising that all the house of Israel will be returned to the land of Israel. Verse 11, I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall, uh, shall you bereave them of children. If you go to the nation, to the land of Israel today, you will see for your own eyes just how much of this prophecy has already been fulfilled. The nation of Israel, it's, it's amazing. You know, it was a dry and an arid place for 2,000 years, and it's just, they've tilled it, they've, they've irrigated it, they've planted it. It's, it's a very fertile place now. It's a, it's a desirable place to, to, for people to live in the Middle East. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says the Lord God. Let me read verse 15 in another translation. I, I just like the way it read. I will not let you hear those other nations insult you, and you will no longer be mocked by them. You will not be a land that causes its nation to fall, says the Sovereign Lord. 
Today, Israel still hears the nations mocking them and insulting them. And uh, so this is not completely fulfilled, obviously. There's, there's a partial fulfillment, but there's a complete fulfillment yet to come. Verse 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. What that's referring to is the uh, Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19, dealing with the woman's, the Hebrew woman's uh, menstrual cycles. During that time, and it's all spelled out there in Leviticus, during that time, a woman was con- uh, considered ceremonially unclean. And uh, so there was a certain separation from her and her husband as a result of it. And there was also a certain separation from her and entering into the tabernacle. And really, it was a picture that God was painting for the children of Israel. The picture is that the children of Israel's sins had defiled them, and it resulted in their separation from God, their husband, and from the land of Israel. And it should be a reminder to you and I as well that sin separates us from God, and it separates us from each other. Verse 18. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on, their la- on the land and for, the idols, for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. In other words, these are God's people, and yet, look, they're being punished by God. And so God's name was being, uh, you know, maligned there in the different nations. When you and I as Christians sin, and we all sin, right? We all, we all stumble, we do things wrong, we say things we shouldn't say, or we, you know, we have bad attitudes towards someone, whatever it is, we sin. People watch you and I. They watch our lives, especially if they know you're a Christian, And they want to see if you are genuinely different or if you're just like everybody else. And so, you know, when we sin, man, I tell you, um, it brings reproach on the name of the Lord. Verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. You know, the, the children of Israel in Babylon, they didn't, there's no record of them repenting. And then as a result of their repentance, God said, okay, they finally repented. I'm going to bring them out of the land and bring them back into, give them back to the land of Israel. We, we don't see that in scriptures. God brought them back to the land of Israel not because of their repentance, but because of His promise. God told them that He would return them back to the land. And He didn't wait for them to repent. He brought them back into the land of Israel. It was nothing had nothing to do with what the children of Israel did. It's everything about what God did and what God promised. And this is just such a perfect picture of God's grace. Oh, he saved you and I. We, we have done nothing to deserve His 
His grace and His salvation. It's all what Jesus Christ did for us. You know, many of the children of Israel are now back in the land of Israel once more. And with a few exceptions, the majority of Israelites, the majority of Israelis, they don't call themselves Israelites anymore, but the majority of Israelis, they're still in unbelief regarding Jesus the Messiah. And yet God's poured out His blessings on that nation. And He's brought them back into the land. And I think the nation state of Israel that you and I know today, that's a living testimony of God's grace to the world today. Look what God did to a nation that they don't even believe in Him, and yet God's brought them back into the land and blessed them. That's a testimony of God's grace to this world. Verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. So if you read that, you'll understand this is actually a partial, it was partially fulfilled, I should say, with the return of the Babylonian exiles. Why? Because they were not scattered among all the nations. They were in Babylon at the time. The dispersion dispersion in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus Vespasian, then the Jews were scattered worldwide, everywhere, for 2,000 years. You know, today you can go to Israel and, and you've got Ethiopian Jews, you've got Chinese Jews, you've got Russian Jews, you've got American Jews, you've got Spanish Jews, you've got, you know, uh, South American Jews, you've got Jews from every, pretty much every nation on earth that have come back. They, they literally were scattered throughout the planet. And we've seen a more complete fulfillment of God's promises right here in this chapter in our lifetime. I mean, that's exciting. In our lifetime, we've seen the partial, at least more complete fulfillment of the children of Israel from all the different nations coming back into the land as God had promised. But when we get to the next couple of chapters, it's going to be really exciting. But anyways, that's just a teaser for next week. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know, it's interesting that after the return from the Babylonian exile, the Hebrews they no longer had a national problem with idols. They were, I mean, before they went into captivity, they were into idolatry big time, uh, you know, nationally. Um, and after that 70 years in captivity, that pretty much cured them of the national idolatry. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody was no longer worshiping idols, but as a nation, by and large, they pretty much had given up their idolatry. Um, but... Again, look at the nation of Israel today. And they're not, they're not a believing nation, believing in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Messiah. They don't have a new heart. So this is speaking about a yet-to-be-fulfilled event when nationally, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. There is coming a time when all Israel will be saved. Now, you know, Oftentimes, you'll hear me speaking about it, or you read it in the Bible, the sins of the flesh. 
In fact, even earlier I said, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the things that are coming against us as Christians. And whenever I say it that way, it's bad, right? The flesh is bad. We don't want to be in the flesh. We don't want to be walking in the flesh. We want to give in to the lusts of the flesh and so on and so forth. And then we read this verse, and God says, I'm going to take out a heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. (laughs) And you go, well, wait a minute. Isn't that a bad thing? Well, in the context of this verse, it's a good thing. If you think about the contrast here between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh is made out of flesh, right? It's soft. It's supple. Well, for some of us, it's more supple than others. (laughs) The older you get, the less supple it gets. But, um, you know, flesh is supple. It's pliable. It's able to be shaped. And you contrast that with stone. Stone is hard. It's immovable. You can't fashion and form it. It's set. It's, 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 it's what it is. It's where it is. You know, I have a friend back in California. I've known him for many years. And uh, when I first met him, he was a Santa Clara County um, deputy sheriff. And he worked in the county jail there in Santa Clara County. And, uh, and then later on, he moved to the Palo Alto Police Department. And he later retired as a detective at the Palo Alto Police Department. And uh, he and I would talk every once in a while. And, and uh, he admitted to me once privately that, you know, whenever he interacted with people, he was jaded. I mean, he was always cynical about anybody that he met or anybody they interacted with. And he said, you know why? He says, because I've spent a career dealing with people that are lying, that are thieves, that are criminals. And he says, and you know what? It, it, get, it wears on you and you get hardened. And he says, so even now, he says, I struggle when I talk to people. It's like I always suspect, you know, their motives. I, I, always, I look at them and, and I, I, just, I just have this hard attitude towards them. He had become hard towards people in general. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, that sin is deceitful and that it hardens our hearts. When you and I are around sin, when we're practicing sin, when we allow sin to stay in our hearts, we actually get hard heart where God is less able to, to mold us and less able to, to shape us and less able to, to use us the way he wants to use us because we've allowed sin to settle in there and it's, it's like concrete. It just it gets stuck and you can't shape it and you can't move it. And God wants to give you and I a new heart. And of course he has it salvation, but he wants to get rid of all those areas where our hearts are hard and that's dealing with sin. And that's why we need to deal with the sin in our hearts because he wants your and my hearts to be pliable and, and shapeable so that he can transform us and he can use our lives for his pleasure and for his will. For Israel today, nationally, they have a hard heart. So looking at this prophecy, this is speaking of a yet-to-be-fulfilled time. And I believe it's after the seven-year tribulation, which is also interestingly known as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being the name for Israel. After the time of Israel's trouble, after the seven-year tribulation, and starting with the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth, all Israel will be saved, and they're going to have a new heart at that time. All Israel. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. You know, sometimes people attempt to reform their lives apart from God. 
Well, the fact is you can't. Well, at least not totally and definitely not permanently. It's only when you and I allow the Spirit of God to transform us. And He allows us, He enables us to walk according to God's will. You and I, we can't do that, but as the writer says, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. It's by you and I submitting to the Holy Spirit, He enables us to live that life, to, to walk uh, you know, according to His will. He's the one that convicts us of sin and, 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 and says, you know, you've got to deal with that issue in your life. And He's the one that's speaking to us all the time, trying to guide us and, and direct us. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's really simple. We try to do it on our own, but it, you know you can't do it on your own. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Galatians, or excuse me, Philippians two thirteen says, "For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure." I'm prone to sin. We even sing that one song. You know, I'm prone to sin. I'm prone to to rebelling against the Lord. Even as a Christian, I'm prone that direction. My flesh wants me to go in that direction all the time. But it's only it's God, who, it's God who's working in you and working in me to bring us more like Jesus Christ and to conformity to Jesus. Verse 28. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you never need again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. God says, I'm going to bring you back into the land, but I'm not doing it for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. And that is grace. That's grace, pure and simple there, a picture of it. So this is all a promise that is yet to be fulfilled for the nation of Israel. And yet, for individuals, that transformation can take place in our hearts today. You know, if you and I confess our sins and believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, and if we put our trust in Him for our salvation, God will give us a new heart. God will put His Spirit within us, and He will enable us to live a life pleasing to Him because you can't do it apart from Him. Verse 33, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you, from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land has, that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste of desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. You know, this is just one more time in Scripture where God confirms that there was a literal historic Garden of Eden. I, I'm, I, I love reading across that. You know, or, or, or Jesus in the New Testament says, you know, Isaiah said here, going to Isaiah, and I'm kind of going off on a little rabbit trail, but you know, a lot of people say that there's 
the book of Isaiah was not written by Isaiah. It was, there was like two different authors. And the first part is written by one guy and maybe Isaiah. The second part definitely isn't written by Isaiah because how could Isaiah have known and, and literally, you know, written all these things that came so literally true? You know, it's just impossible. And so, and the literary style changes and stuff. And yet you go through the New Testament and Jesus says, you know, and Isaiah said, and he quotes from the early part of Isaiah. And then later on he says, and as Isaiah said, and he quotes from the later part of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. And Jesus says that. Jesus proclaims that. Um, you know, and Jesus here, or God here is mentioning the Garden of Eden. And some people say, well, that's just a, you know, it's just a nice fairy tale. Well, it's, it's a true place. It literally historic Garden of Eden. They're going to look at the land of Israel and they're going to say, man, this is like the Garden of Eden again. Verse 36. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. I will also... um, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. In other words, God's going to let them pray to him. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord." There's going to be so many. It's going to be like flocks, like during the feast days. I mean, you and I read that and go, okay, a lot of, a lot of people, I guess. There's a lot of stuff being spoken in there. When God says he will increase the men of Israel like a flock offered as holy sacrifices at Jerusalem on its feast days, if you were a Jewish person living in that day, all of a sudden you'd have this mental picture. Because every year... The day for the for the feast of Passover and for the Day of Atonement, which they now call Yom Kippur, there would be so many pilgrims in Jerusalem, and all of them, one per household, would be required to bring a lamb to be sacrificed at the temple. And so, and there'd be like millions of people there in Jerusalem. The the, the, the city would just swell; it'd be just explode with people coming to worship God there every once a year there. And Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he says the brook Kidron, it flows near the temple and it flows in the the Kidron Valley. Um, He says during the Passover time and during the Day of of Atonement, that blood from the, the slaughtering of all those lambs, from all those people, all those pilgrims that would come in, that brook Kidron would actually turn red. And it would just flow with blood from the temple. It would just be runoff. So much blood. Luke, you want to come up? You guys want to come up for communion? Now, what's interesting about that is that John's Gospel tells us after the Lord's Supper, when Jesus had finished praying for the disciples, and by the way, he was praying for you and I. You know, Jesus prayed for you. In John chapter, in John, uh, I don't know what chapter it is, 16 or 17. Anyways, look it up for your interest if you never, never realized that. After Jesus finished supper with his disciples, the last supper, and after he had finished praying for them and speaking his last words to them, in John 18 verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the book, brook Kidron where there was a garden 
which he and his disciples entered. Get this picture in your mind, right? It's in the evening. It's twilight. And Jesus is, he's just finished telling his disciples and praying for him and knowing that he's going to go to his death that evening. And as he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, remember he was sweating great drops of blood and, and, and just the anxiety and, the, and just the heaviness of what he was about to do came over him as he was in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And as he's walking there, he walks across this brook Kidron that, according to Alfred Edersheim, was flowing red with blood. And in the moonlight, he could probably see the red tint. Can you imagine the picture that Jesus, I mean, what came to him in his mind as he saw that? All that blood from all those lambs shed for all those people's sins. And here was the Lamb of God about ready to shed his blood. And his sin would wash, or his blood would wash away everyone's sins. What a picture that would have been for Jesus to see. And that one Lamb's blood, the Lamb of God, so precious and so holy and so powerful that even today, man, it has power to wash away our sins. Even today, it can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how, how holy and how powerful God's blood is, Jesus' blood is. And this morning, we're celebrating a